If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everybody, it's Megyn Kelly and welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. This is it. This is election week and we are now within hours of the first official at polling stations presidential votes being cast. Of course, millions of people have already mailed in their votes, done early mail uh, voting and so on, early voting. Uh, But this is the last chance for these candidates to crisscross the nation and make their closing arguments. We've got you covered today with both sides. Today, we've got Hugh Hewitt joining us along with Andrew Yang making his first appearance on the show. And then we will have that guy from Trafalgar Polls, the one who's the outlier saying Trump is going to win. He's the only pollster predicting that. Uh, Join us on whether he still believes that and why. Uh, So we've got all your stuff covered for you. And I want to tell you while I have your attention that we'd love to hear more from you today. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be answering some of your election questions. And so you can just email in your questions to us at questions, plural, at devilmaycaremedia.com. Questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. What do you want to know? We've got a lot of experts here. I don't know if I'd call myself an election expert, but I certainly have a lot of thoughts on the media and how it will be covered tomorrow and what to watch for. Uh, So shoot us an email and we'll try to get to those tomorrow as uh, we release our podcast, hopefully as early in the day as we can. Uh, Listen, I want to get to Hugh in one second, but first I want to tell you about stamps.com. One of the things I loathe is going to the post office. It's not that I don't respect what the post office does. It's just that the lines are always long. I find it a little daunting. And nine times out of 10, when I get up there, I have screwed something up. Well, good news. You can screw it up now right from the comfort of your home and fix it right from the comfort of your home thanks to stamps.com. As you know, this holiday season, things are going to get nuts with the mail. More people are going to be mailing stuff than ever before. And that means the post office is going to be busy. Who has time for that? Stamps.com will bring the post office and now UPS shipping as well right to your computer. You can mail and ship anything from the convenience of your home or office, and you can do it with just a few clicks and you will save money as you go. Stamps.com will bring the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller fulfilling orders during this holiday season or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You use your computer, very simple, to print out official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, you just schedule a pickup, or you can drop it right off. It's that simple. 
And with Stamps.com, you'll get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail, up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Pretty amazing. There's no risk. And with my promo code, MK, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. That's convenient, right? Because you don't know how much your packages weigh. How are you supposed to figure that out without the digital scale? No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MK. That's stamps.com, enter MK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. And joining us now, Hugh Hewitt, the named proprietor of the Nationally Syndicated Radio Show. And it's a pleasure to have you on, Hugh. How are you? I'm good, Megan. Good to be back. Congratulations on the launch of this. Wow, have you, you've taken the internet by storm. Oh, thank you, Hugh. Thanks to guests like you and awesome listeners like we have tuning in. It's been exciting. Um, okay, so I'm excited. Do you feel excited right now? Yeah, I never get over it. Never gets old. I've been on radio or television on election night since 1990, uh, sometimes both. This year, both. Four years ago, both. And uh, it never gets old. I've been disappointed. Again, I'm a Republican. I've been disappointed some nights. I've been thrilled other nights, but it never gets old. I love election night. I know. And I, it just makes me love America because even though Trump has been rumbling about, I won't leave if I lose, he he will. He'll go gracefully yes. at some point. And, and if Biden loses, he'll go gracefully. And there will be a peaceful transition of power or continuation of it one way or the other. It's one of the things that makes America great. So, you know, everyone has their hopes for how it's going to turn out. But I feel like the first and foremost thing is how beautiful America is and how amazing our system is. Now, we've been doing this so so well, I mean, relative to other countries for a couple hundred years now. Okay. So one of the big things that broke over the weekend was news in Iowa. They call it the Iowa poll, I guess. It's the gold standard for statewide polling. It has been for decades. And they are now saying that Trump is up by seven points as Joe Biden fades. And what the politicos are saying, Hugh, is that that's been the biggest fear of the Democrats all along, that there would be a Joe Biden fade in some of these states as we got closer and closer to the big vote and that Iowa looks good for Trump now, but it may be, you know, a bellwether for how other states could close over the next two days. Your thoughts? I agree with that. I, I was speaking this morning on my radio show, Megan, with National Security Advisor Ambassador O'Brien. He's on Air Force One with the president. And he went to Iowa, I think, to Dubuque yesterday. And he's not on for political reasons. He's there because there's always a, a Security Council aide, either the the ambassador or someone, a deputy with the president in the event, stuff like Armenia or the Bajan happens or hostages are rescued. And he just could not believe the crowd in Iowa. And I believe the reason that that is buoying uh, Trump supporters, although there's a lot of confirmation bias on both sides, everyone's grabbing onto their own best piece of news, is that they're extrapolating the rural vote and the agricultural vote in Iowa and the surge of Joni Ernst, the senator from Iowa, into other states with significant agricultural rural votes like Michigan, like Wisconsin, indeed, even uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania, pretty significant agricultural votes and rural votes. So if they can extrapolate what has happened in Iowa, which is very dominantly rural agriculture to the other battleground states, it's a very good momentum play for President Trump. On the other hand, there are very good indications for Joe Biden out there as well. It's just confirmation bias stocks the land and everybody's looking and the Trump people are really looking at Iowa. Yeah. So it is the Des Moines Register poll and everybody looks at this thing. And what they're yep. saying is the reason that this is tightened so much is because 
the gender gap has narrowed and independents have returned to Trump. Apparently, Biden had a 20 point lead with women before in September and uh, Trump had a 21 percent lead with men. And now Biden's lead with women has shrunk to nine percent percentage points. So he's 50 to 41 over Trump. Uh, so he's Trump is closing the gap with women and he's closing the gap with independents. And that is the fear by Democrats in other states, because that's where Biden's made his inroads in those two groups. I, I agree with that. And I think my my theory on this close on that demographic is Amy Coney Barrett. And you as a lawyer can speak to this better than I can, Megan, as a woman lawyer. Uh, I think that the president selected her and that she did such an overwhelmingly persuasive job. She went from being uh, a minority candidate with about 35 to 40% support to being a majority candidate with an excess of 55% support. And I believe that reflected well on Joni Ernst, who was on the committee. I believe it reflected well on Susan Collins in Maine and on Martha McSally, though they, they were not in the committee and they both didn't vote for her. I just think Amy Coney Barrett helped the Republican Party brand significantly And even with some of the people who are dug in completely negative Trump, they loved Amy Coney Barrett. It had to erode some of that anti-Trump feel. You know, I wonder, Hugh, I've been I've been talking about this a lot with my friends about women and Trump. And here's what I've heard from some of my friends who I, I was actually in Long Island for the weekend and and talked with a lot of women out there, some neighbors of my friend. Um who were saying secretly they're going to vote for Trump. They're shy Trump voters who don't want anybody to know. But they were talking about how it's, 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 they don't like Trump's manner. They don't like some of the things he says, but they really don't like what's happening in our schools and the cultural messages being shoved down our throat and white people all being dubbed white supremacists because of their pigmentation. And so they're thinking as they get closer. I mean, th- there's one woman who lives across the street from my close friend who is saying she like as she gets closer to voting, she doesn't think she can pull the lever in favor of those other things. So she's like, I don't like him, but I can't support those other things. And I feel like as you get closer and closer to the actual vote, things start to crystallize in that way. I, I, I agree with you completely. Now, I still know three never Trump women. Uh, who are otherwise Republicans. I know three. And they have not moved an inch. Uh, They did not vote for Joe Biden, but they're not voting for the president. And I did a three-hour radio show on Monday morning in which I only took calls from people who had voted for Trump this year or intended to and did not vote for him in 2016. I always caution folks, lawyers know anecdotal evidence is evidence of anecdotes. That's all it is. It's just calls. But but I, I love to talk to these people and get their story And the most persuasive caller was from Houston, Texas. His wife and he have come around and they're evangelical. They really loathed Trump four years ago. Vulgar, obnoxious, cruel, mean. You know, he he laid it all out there. He was not mincing words four years ago. And he said, he's still not very nice. He's still mean, but I got to vote for him because results matter. I believe there are a lot of people in that didn't vote for him demographic that have come back because of results. And I also think this pandemic uh, accounts for a lot of people voting. And they might be uh, for Biden, they might be for Trump, but a lot of them are coming out because they've got to get schools reopened. You mentioned this. I think it's a hidden issue. I hope they pull for it in the exits. But parents need their children to get back. It's catastrophic. Uh, Among the people who recognize this last week, Nick Kristoff, who's a friend of mine on the radio, 
And uh, he, he's a, you know, a liberal, a classic New York Times liberal columnist. But Nick came out last week and wrote, we got to reopen schools. The, the consequences for children of poverty, children in the inner city, children without one uh, parent at home all day long are catastrophic. I think a lot of people who pull the trigger for Trump tomorrow who don't like him are doing so because they have to get the schools reopened. And Trump's pretty obvious, the candidate of choice there. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so interesting. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and, and both of these guys, Biden and Trump, folks, this is all about Pennsylvania. This yep. is more than any other state about Pennsylvania. And um, and you can tell, I mean, Trump over the next couple of days spent a good amount of time in Pennsylvania. Biden spending, I think, both of the next two days in Pennsylvania. Both of these guys want this state and they want it badly for good reason. I mean, if Trump can hold on to you know his original core of states that he won last time, he can afford to lose Michigan and Wisconsin and still win. But that would require him to hold on to Pennsylvania. Um, so the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, for the first time since 1972, has come out and supported Trump for president, a, a Republican for, for president. And, th- and this is how they put it, Hugh. I thought this so interesting. They say, he's unpresidential. He is crude and unkind. He's just not a good man. These things and much worse are commonly said of President Trump. His personality totally eclipses his record. But what is this really about? Isn't the real question whether he has been taking the country and the economy of this region in the right direction these last four years? Can we separate the man from the record? And they go on to say, look, we we are also embarrassed, as millions of Americans are, by some of his unpresidential manners and character, his rudeness, his put downs, his bragging, his bending of the truth. None of this is justifiable, they say. They say, but look, Winston Churchill, he's not on the ballot. (laughs) And under Trump, the economy has been booming pre-COVID. Our trade relationships have gotten better. He appointed originalists to the Supreme Court. Energy independence for the first time in the lifetimes of most of us. Uh, he, He may not be a unifier, but he has remembered flyover country in a way no other president has. And they contrast it with Biden, you know, who they say, this is a quote from the same piece saying, but the Biden-Harris ticket offers us higher taxes and a nanny state that will bow to the bullies and the woke who would tear down history rather than learning from it and building up the country. It offers an end to fracking and other cuckoo California dreams that will cost the economy and the people who need work most right now. That's, of course, Pennsylvania talking. Um, they, They conclude by saying good paying green jobs are probably not jobs for Pittsburgh or Cleveland, or Toledo, or Youngstown. It offers softness on China, and Mr. Trump understands that they're our enemy, and so on. So I thought, to me, that sort of embodied what some of these previous never-Trumpers, or at least unenthusiastic, you know, Trump supporters or Trump, you know, voters at one point were wrestling with. I don't like him. I don't want to say I endorse the mean tweets and the thin-skinned nature and the deceit, but on paper... How do I vote for the other guy, given what my principles might be? And, you know, Megan, I I read that with great interest yesterday. I grew up seven miles from Pennsylvania in Warren, Ohio, and uh, Sharon was seven miles over. And I've been up and down to the Pittsburgh airport a hundred times probably in my life going. uh, It's easier to get to than John Hopkins in Cleveland for someone leaving from Warren in the Youngstown and Steel Valley. And so these are my people. It's the same thing on the Trumbull County, Mahoning County side of the border over in Sharon down to Beaver County, that they're all the same people. They're steel workers and they're fracking enthusiasts. But Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is also interesting for a particular reason. If you go back and look, they had a woke problem. They had reporters quitting on them and photographers quitting on them during the unrest of the summer, alleging 
institutional and systemic bias at the newspaper. They have also had a city that was shocked by anti-Semitic hatred, by violence against the temple. They have also watched Philadelphia uh, convulse in the last week. They're also very much in favor of having jobs after you know, I left in, in 1978, as did a lot of people from the region. The region is alive. Pittsburgh, and it pains me to say this because they're Steelers fans. It's a great city. It's just an amazing <laughs> city that is thriving and coming back. You're kind of bookended. You're a North, you know, you're a upstate New Yorker. There are parts of the country that still don't understand what happened to the industrial Midwest. And they are, they don't want to go back. They've got some hope. So when Vice President Biden was lured by President Trump into saying, I'm going to transition from the oil industry. Yes, they are polluters. I -hmm. thought, click, click, click. It was the decisive moment of the debates. And I also believe that 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 Pittsburgh Post-Gazette editorial, if Trump pulls off another upset, it is dependent on Pennsylvania. I know there are a lot of paths without Pennsylvania. I don't believe it. I think he's got to win Pennsylvania. If he wins Pennsylvania, people will look back at that editorial as being the canary in the mine of a repeat of 2016. It's interesting you should say that about the nanny state situation there. I I do wonder how big a role that the whole the woke culture is going to play in this election. You know, it's been shoved down our throat by enabling media from papers to broadcasters, corporate America and so on. And you know, this is the voters chance to stand up and say, no, no. But I've also heard the debate, Hugh, that if you want that to stop, is Trump the best option? You know, some people on the on the Biden supporting side will say things will calm down if you put him in office. Trump is a divisive figure. Trump makes the wokesters want to, you know, ride on their stallions all night long and, you know, shout evil things about him. But Biden he's not some crazy left-wing wokist. He'll sort of get in there. He'll be moderate and people will calm down. What do you think? I don't buy that. And I believe you and I are both products of of national news media and we know the business pretty well. And that business is not my talk radio business, but you and I both work for NBC. I still work for NBC. We know what the culture of, of big media is and the culture of big media is hypersensitivity to wokeness. And by hypersensitivity, I mean, Beyond what anyone can possibly imagine, the woke culture of the newsroom is an oppressive force. Rod Dreher has just written a book called Live Not by Lies, in which he warns about soft totalitarianism. By that, he simply means that people censor themselves for fear of retribution. That is a broad in the land. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the enormous surge in turnout. There's a lot of broad in the land. There's also great inequity. There are lots of things. The fact that I have to say that is, in fact, a product of woke culture. You know, people yeah. can go and take excerpts from the Megyn Kelly podcast and Media Matters can say Hugh Hewitt ignored woke culture. And all I can do is then make sure that I've characterized things accurately and carefully. People are tired of living that way, Megan. Me and too. I think, Honestly, I, know, I, think I don't, I don't want to say worked. in 25 words what I could say in two. Screw you. You know, I just, Thank you. I'm sick of it. I'm yeah. sick. I am sick of these woke scolds, including Media Matters, which is the most dishonest organization out there. I couldn't give two figs what they write about me. But the problem is most people do have to be scared. They have to be really scared about what tweets they like and what they say publicly. And I know we're going to get into this in a minute when the guy from Trafalgar joins us about the shy Trump voters. But my thing, at Hugh, is like, 
I think there are a lot of people who have been letting it get pent up for a long time. And when they go into that polling station tomorrow, that's when they have their say. That's the moment the people in, in Pittsburgh get to say no more. And they don't have to pretend. Now, in, in Youngstown and Warren, people never pretended. That's why they elected Jim Traficant, arguably the strangest member of Congress in the last 40 years. But they <laughs> did it because something. they don't care about woke culture. They do not care about woke culture at all in the Steel Valley. I think there are a lot of places in America, universities. I, I mean, I've been on a faculty meeting at the, the Fowler School of Law at Chapman University for 25 years, and it, it's gradually grown more liberal than it's gradually grown left. I don't think that's a secret. And I think every academic institution in the United States has gradually gone from liberal to left to way left. And every, and there are a lot of workplaces, uh, a lot of big tech places, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, uh, censoring the New York Post until he finally retreated like Burnside's at Fredericksburg, having blown his brand and completely lost the credibility of the idea of moderation. It is everywhere. And I don't know if it's the new 20 million voters. We won't know until Wednesday morning or Thursday. They might be African-American people who are turning out for the first time who believe with Kamala Harris and, and woke culture and the promise of socialism that they're going to get their due. They're going to get. Well, that's the other piece of it. Yeah, that, that's, that's you, you just touch on the second piece of it, because it's not just about woke culture. It's also about who who's going to be in control of my life and my decisions. The government yeah. or me? Well, I'm a freedom guy. And so I believe that that people ought always to choose freedom and never to choose government. But I, I, I lived in California for 30 years, so I moved back to the Beltway. California has chosen uh, progressively over the 1990 to 2020 cycle to move left and to being cared for and having their decisions made for them. And it is an untenable situation unless they move to single payer and unless they raise taxes dramatically, they're broke. And so people make that choice. They want security over freedom. I don't want that choice. I don't think the middle of the country wants that choice. Well, even California, you know, we talked last week about the ridiculous, ridiculous restrictions that Gavin Newsom has put into place for Thanksgiving, where every Thanksgiving celebration has to be held outside Hello, Northern California is not a balmy place this time of year. It can only be two hours. Otherwise, Gavin Newsom will disapprove. Something bad could happen. <laughs> but two, hour, two, two hours and five minutes and you're in trouble. You can only have family members from three different family groups. In other words, so if my three kids were grown, my husband and I would count as one family group and I'd have to choose two out of my three kids to come because it's to, like if they had their own families at that point. You can let them use the indoor bathroom facilities, but only if it's been sanitized in between uh, each visit to it as well. No singing and no shouting. Hello. Has anyone ever been to anyone's Thanksgiving? Like shouting <laughs> is part of that. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's a, and like the fact that there is a healthy portion of the population saying, if you object, you die. You hate grandma. We have to listen to Governor Gavin. You know, like Gavin knows all. I mean, this Hugh, I can't believe it's gotten to this point. Well, I, I actually like Gavin, but I thought he made a strategic mistake. And by that, I mean this. If I was the king of the forest, not queen, not duke, not earl, and I was Gavin, I would have said, hey, California, we're in the middle of a surge. And so please act responsibly to the extent that you can. Please don't expand your Thanksgiving. To the extent that you can, please consider being outdoors. To the extent that you can, 
do safe practices, have hand sanitizer on. Please be responsible Golden State citizens. That's what Pete Wilson would have done. I know Pete pretty well. I met my wife at a Pete Wilson fundraiser. I talked to him on Thursday. And the idea that you have to issue you know, the Stasi report where this is what you're going to do and we're going to encourage your neighbors to call in. It is incredible to me that we do not trust the good sense of Americans to do what's right by their fellow right. citizens. They're it, at the point it, now where they're saying when you sit at your Thanksgiving table, of course, outdoors and you're shoving down the food in the minimum of two hours you have, maximum of two hours you have, you make sure everybody at the table has at least six feet apart from them in each direction. Who the hell's got that big a table? Or you got six feet in each direction you have to separate by? I mean, it's like it goes on and on. And all I can think is people got to be getting sick of this. That office, the governor's office out there just a week earlier had sent out an, an advisory saying it's fine to eat in outdoor restaurants, but you have to put your mask on in between bites, in between bites and in between sips. And they said nothing during the justice uh, demonstrations, which unfortunately in parts of LA became riots. I, I believe it is. It's interesting to me that they've had huge pro-Tump turnouts in Beverly Hills, which is a heavily Iranian-American area and therefore conservative, and in Orange County, which has traditionally been uh, Reagan land and Nixon land. But nevertheless, large numbers, enormous numbers of people who are willing to, uh, you'll talk to the Trafalgar folks about social desirability bias. They no longer care about social desirability bias. That's kind of a breaking down of a wall. Uh, As you said, screw you. Uh, they are not going to be intimidated. Now, I think we will come back from this. I do not believe there's a permanent sense of uh, differences among Americans. Thanksgiving dinners may be more spirited, but I do think we will get back to the mean, but only after wokeness is rebuked and only after probably four more years, if Trump wins four more years of conflict, until the media returns to being the media and not the coach. Or is totally annihilated. Well, I mean, one way, one way or the other. I mean, honestly, I... My own personal view is the media can't come back. And once you've sacrificed your, your credibility, you can't get it back. And, and sadly, I look at this and I think about this whenever I see Brian Williams over on MSNBC, uh, who seems like a relatively nice guy, but I don't believe anything he says. I know he lied to me for a living. And I don't believe Don Lemon or Chris Quan. I don't believe them. I, I don't have reason to believe them. I'll speak to Don, uh, who I'm friendly with. He's gone off the edge, right? I mean, completely off the edge. I'll speak as well to the fact that your podcast and Joe Rogan's podcast have exploded. That is a fact. All right. So there's a there is a demand for people with credibility who engage in honest conversations, which is off the charts. Talk radio is always fed off of that, but we also have a lot more commercials than you do. Uh, right? We 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 drive home news weather sports, we have 38 minutes per hour. And so people now don't have to take 38 minutes an hour, they can take 58 minutes an hour. And they're doing that. And I really worry about my business. But if I was in charge of one of these networks and they're down to 2 million or 1 million nightly viewers, when Tucker had 5 to 7 million viewers uh, for the uh, uh, Bobaleski interview, I I just have to say to the corporate management, just as I did to Jack at, at Dorsey at Twitter, are you out of your minds? You're driving away the people who pay the bills. They, they don't care. They, for them, it's ideological. They really think this is a Hitler-esque moment where you're either for him or you're against him. And they, they can't understand how somebody in Iowa or Pittsburgh would vote in their own economic interests as opposed to for what you know the coastal elites or Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, thinks is best for them. Can I ask you, though, because I read a piece by you recently, and, and the quote was, America will endure. 
America will endure. And you just talked about how we go through cycles in this country, but we are not on the brink of civil war. We are not at the level of violence that we saw in 66 through 68. This isn't a revolutionary moment. And we, either way, whatever happens on Tuesday, we're going to be fine. I believe that, Megan. Part of that is because you're younger than I am by a lot. I was a, a, a young high school student when Kent State happened, and my cousin was on the campus of Kent State. My mom was crying in the living room, and they didn't know what had happened. There were kids shot, and we had to leave town at one point because of rioting. And, and 67, 68, actually 66 to 68 were urban unrest, two assassinations, 70 to 71 were the massive mobilization against the war, the Kent State stuff. This country is so much better off, fiscally, materially, socially, and online is not real. The the world that we live in is still, it's fraught with differences. I've got old friends who who wanna argue with me endlessly about things that I think are not in dispute, but it's not 1968. We don't have an SDS, we got an Antifa. SDS was much bigger, much more organized, much deadlier. Antifa are, I mean, I, I just have, trouble taking them seriously. We have white right-wing militia in Michigan. I know about them. They've been around since McVeigh. They remain off the charts crazy and dangerous, but we're we're not anywhere near 68, much less 1860. And I think woke people overplay this, this danger from the right in order to obscure what has happened in the inner city. You know, boarding up DC right now, I don't know what they're doing in Manhattan, Megan, but they're boarding up DC in the event that Trump wins. That is the first time in my life. But even if that happens, it will be a one or two day deal, not uh, a country splitting division. Mm-hmm. I mean, meanwhile, this entire town has voted for Donald or for uh, Joe Biden. Everyone here in, in New York, except for a couple of quiet you know, participants here and there, uh, is getting ready to vote Democrat and totally believes that Joe Biden's going to win. And so if there are riots, it's going to be out of shock and disgust. And then where do we go? You know, it's like. I, I don't know. Where do we go from Megan, there? I got a What's... question for you. What do your New Yorker friends say about Andrew Cuomo and COVID? Every one of my Democrat friends talk about COVID and Trump blew it. And I say he did as well as anyone in Europe has done. He's doing Absolutely. about as well as anyone could. But Cuomo, and I don't blame him. Everybody's tried to do the best they can, but he made some terrible mistakes. But he okay, gets a pass. So can I tell you? So my yeah. best friend is, is is Janice Dean. She's one of my closest friends. And she's the one who's been raising the alarm of this guy. If it weren't for Janice Dean, I don't think we most of the country would know about Andrew Cuomo signing the order that basically consigned 6,000 nursing patients to to death. I mean, he what he said was the nursing homes had to take COVID yes. positive patients back into them. It It is... It, it's actually probably more than 6,000 seniors who died as a result of that because they did, they haven't counted or released any numbers from those who got very, very ill in the nursing home after a COVID positive patient was released right next to them. And then that ill, that secondarily ill person had to be moved to a hospital right before he died. So the number is greater. And it's disgusting to me to see this guy on The View and Sonny Hostin, who's hostile to anybody who is a Republican. But when Andrew Cuomo comes on, who actually did issue a really controversial order, is like, can you tell me about the nursing home thing? Because somebody said something. I just it's infuriating to me. So that's one of my closest friends. But can I tell you, my my girlfriends that I hang out in this city with, they're in love with him, Hugh. They're in love with him. They're the, they're the ones who are wearing like the Cuomo sexual t-shirts and 
they're buying the whole thing. You know, they they can see how Trump did everything wrong on the pandemic, but they will give him a total pass. And everybody's Boy, got their ideological glasses on. Confirmation bias is a hell of a drug, isn't it? Confirmation totally. bias is, is the thing that we have to fight. I know exactly what Trump did wrong. I know exactly what Cuomo did wrong because I fight confirmation bias every day and I read broadly. But boy, a lot of people in America don't want to get off that drug. I mean, people are already talking about if Biden wins, Andrew Cuomo is a possible AG. Can you imagine, Hugh, if he were a Republican in a Republican state and it signed an order like that? No one would be talking about his ascent to a cabinet position or potentially presidential run, which they say is his real goal. No one would be. The Democrats would be killing him. They'd be protesting every media appearance. It's just, you know, yet another if example President of the Trump, hypocrisy. If President Trump were to win a second term and Christy Nome was nominated for a cabinet and it was a Democratic Senate, they would not approve her. They would say, you mm-hmm. let them have that motorcycle rally. You may not be a cabinet member. To anyone listening, they've got to vote straight Republican for Senate because whether or not the president wins, we cannot let the Senate be run by Chuck Schumer. It's just a matter of simple economics and national security. You can't wait. I'm glad you brought that up because I do have to let you go. But but can you tell me what do you what do you predict is going to happen on Tuesday? I think think Trump is going to win. But what about the Senate? I'm feeling good. Joni Ernst is back ahead. I think Susan Collins is dead heat. Martha McSally is dead heat. Uh, Tom Tillis is a point or two behind, but Cal Cunningham cheated on not one, but I think more than one uh, yeah. time with his wife. It's hard to keep and, up. And that's a North military Carolina. state. Yeah. And I, oh, Lindsay put it away. Mitch McConnell put it away. John Cornyn put it away. I'm feeling very good. And John James may yet surprise in Michigan. We will see. All right. Hugh, such a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Can't wait to talk to you after we know what happened. Thank you, Megan. All right. We'll see you soon. Coming up in one second, we're going to be joined by Andrew Yang. That's going to be fun, right? We'll get get the other side, hear what his closing argument is for for Biden. But before we get to him, let's talk about Scoremaster. Uh, So I shared a hot story a couple weeks ago, and it nearly crashed the Scoremaster website. The story is that the average American has 97 points, people, that they can quickly add to their credit score but no idea how to get it. I mean, that's huge. 97 points is a big addition, which can save you a lot of dough. Scoremaster credit scientists discovered an algorithm that will super boost your credit score. Not just just a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine that. That is super important if you're refinancing your home or buying a car or applying for credit. Case in point, say you have okay credit, and you want to buy a car. If you go to Scoremaster first and boost your credit score, just the average 61 points, that's the average, but you can go higher than that. You could save 9,000 bucks on your car loan. And if you go to Scoremaster and boost your credit, just the average number again, before buying your home loan, you could save almost a hundred thousand bucks over the life of your loan. But that's just if you're average, that's only average. I mean, you could get 97 points super quick. If you own a business from getting a loan to funding projects and financing equipment, super boosting your business credit score can save you a fortune. Scoremaster bottom line will put you in control of your finances. Enroll in minutes and see how many plus points Scoremaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK. That's scoremaster.com slash MK. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Megan. Okay, so an entrepreneur, just for our our audience, just in case they don't know, entrepreneur, author, nonprofit founder, 
born, this is the most important part, in Schenectady, New York. That is my neck of the woods. I grew up in Syracuse and then Albany. Uh, where in Schenectady did you li- did you grow up in Schenectady? I was there until I was four years old. My dad worked for the GE plant up there uh, near Niskayuna. Uh, but I spent a couple of summers there when I was 12 and 13 as well. So I've got a real soft spot and affinity uh, for that neck of the woods. I was from, uh, our town was Bethlehem in uh, the Albany area. So that was my school, Bethlehem Central. And it was, it was great. It's a great part of the country to grow up in. Good roots. That's why you make so much sense, Andrew. That's why when I listen to you, I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm with you. I feel like people from upstate New York um, have good heads on their shoulders. <laughs> Seriously, right? It's like, they're, I think they're just they're kind of like Midwesterners in a way where they, they, they're pretty sensible. They don't get too upset over nonsense. They're not big on the outrage factor. I don't know. I just find there's sort of a consistent strain when I meet people in the middle of the country and I meet people up, upstate, similar stuff. Okay. So let me get back, back down to business with you because it's like a day out from election day. By the way, are you as excited as I am? I'm really excited. I'm excited too, Megan. I filed my paperwork to run in November of 2017. So it's been three years <laughs> building towards <laughs> from, uh, tomorrow. Um, so I've done several levels. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, you of course, you would have preferred it, it be you on that ticket, but you made quite a run of it. And now, of course, have, have endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, you went out to Pennsylvania on uh, Sunday at a rally in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania that day to rally for him. There was a Washington Post article this weekend saying the Democrats are growing a bit more anxious about Pennsylvania, worried that um, they might they're, they're worried about that that sort of rural white vote that tends to be favorable to Donald Trump and whether there's going to be a voter surge there. What's your feeling on because Pennsylvania is what it's all about. We know that. What's your feeling on how that goes? The numbers look good for Joe. I will say that there were many more Trump signs than Biden signs uh, in the areas of Pennsylvania I drove through uh, this weekend. But I'm not sure that's a surprise because I was in uh, predominantly rural areas. Uh, I agree with you. It's going to be neck and neck. Uh, the last polls I saw, had Joe up four or five. Um, but that isn't an insurmountable lead uh, if you assume that, uh, you know, the polls always have some margin of error. Mm-hmm. And, and Joe Biden himself is going to be in Pennsylvania uh, today, Monday, and then tomorrow and a bit through Ohio. He's going to go through Pittsburgh with Lady Gaga, who actually, can I just ask you about that? Because I will tell you, as somebody who's more in the middle, whenever I see it's usually the Democrats take a big celebrity to a place. I'm like, oh, my God, who does that appeal to? That's just my own feeling. What do you think? I mean, it is definitely a democratic phenomenon. Um, I remember Trump sort of calling it out as like, oh, look, like the uh, the Hollywood types, um, uh, you know, are on board with the Democrats. And, and there is some truth to, to the narrative that like, do voters get animated based on what their favorite celebrities are, are doing? I think it does excite young people um, who might not be as engaged politically. Uh, I'll say also as a candidate, you're just pumped when someone wants to hang out with you that's famous. <laughs> where, like, where, where whatever you like, I had a celebrity endorse me, I was like, yeah, that's great. So it, it's very much like a human nature thing uh, if you're actually the, the candidate. Though I agree with you, like, it, it sends a message that frankly did not work in 2016. 
Mm-hmm. You should get like, I'm thinking if you're going to Pittsburgh, you get, I don't know anything about sports, but I think you get like some big famous ex Pittsburgh Steeler. That'd probably do more for him than Lady Gaga would. But at least it's not Lena Dunham, who I never understood why she showed up at anything for anybody. Who the heck was motivated by her? Okay, sorry. That's my own personal view. Not That's not Andrew Yang talking. All right. Let me talk to you about, because we've been talking on this show the past, you know, I've only been on the air for a month or so. Cancel culture, a lot of cancel culture, which I don't like. And I I think a lot of people don't like even I hear from a lot of folks on the center left who listen to this podcast and they don't like it either. It's not it's not a liberal thing. It's a it's a quote leftist thing, which is a different kind of group. And I think it does have a lot of people motivated for Trump who might not otherwise vote for Trump. Why do you think people who are getting ready to pull the lever for Trump because they don't like cancel culture and they don't like sort of the woke scolds? Why do you think they should vote for Joe Biden instead? I think many Americans uh, think I cancel culture is excessive. And I'd actually count Joe Biden as among that number. If you look at his campaign, he has not uh, been either messaging or acting in a way uh, that is consistent with a culture of trying to judge someone incredibly harshly or negatively based upon a particular statement. Uh, Joe actually is very much cut from the opposite cloth where he wants to bring people together. He has a naturally empathetic manner. And so if you're anti-cancel culture, I still think that Joe Biden has your back. Uh, And I understand the antipathy towards that attitude because I I think cancel culture is productive or positive. But what about the people around him, right? Like Kamala Harris seems more pro-cancel culture than than Biden does. And I think that's the concern is that he's going to get in there and you're going to get people who are really loud on this on this subject, trying to push him to, I don't know, to support it. And that Democrats are just going to feel like they have free reign and there's no longer a warrior, in this case, currently in the Oval Office, standing up against what tend to be the bullies, these sort of woke bullies who want to cancel people out of their jobs and their friendships if they say the wrong thing, quote, quote unquote, wrong. You know, what's fun, Meg, is that I think Joe's been kind of swimming against that current the entire time. And he won. <laughs> you know, he, he defeated it like there were other candidates of the field who had a different stance on this. And Joe uh, was very consistent. He was a true leader. He said, look, this is what I think is right. I don't expect that to change when he's in office. I think he said on the debate stage with Donald Trump, it's like, look, you're running against me. <laughs> you know, you're running against Joe Biden. Uh, and I, I think that'll be true. When, when he's in power as well. All right, let me throw something else at you because I, I want your democratic take on this. One of the stories that we've been covering is what's what's been happening in schools, public schools across this country. We talked recently about California public schools where not only will they not tell you, their policy, the school policy is not to tell you if your child announces to the school that he's trans or she's trans. They won't tell the parent. It's the policy not to. And then they'll also let the child leave school grounds during the day to get medication, you know, uh, like testosterone and transitioning hormones without telling the parent. And at the same time, in the sex ed out in California public schools, they're getting extremely graphic, extremely graphic with 10 year olds, fifth graders. So graphic, I I don't want to repeat it here because it's just too R rated. And I think a lot of moms are against that, very much against all of that. You know, they don't think their parents' rights end at the schoolhouse door. And they don't, and they see that as a Democrat thing, that that is a liberal agenda. And while they might consider themselves progressive, they they might vote against that. 
So what do you say to those folks? I think that parents should have a lot of say in uh, the activities and operations of their school district. My wife's on the, she's the co-president of the PTA. I give you a sense of it. Uh, and so it's hard for me to imagine a circumstance where something was happening with my child in a school where I was not privy to it, or at, at a minimum, the majority of members of a community were somehow on board. The policies you're describing sound very, very uh, aberrant uh, or uh, anomalous, at least to me. And so if your parents, who the vast majority of parents would agree with you, Megan, I certainly would, um, where you think that parents should have like a high degree of visibility into what's going on with our kids. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's the case in virtually every school district around the country. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't want to paint um, like a, a, a party. Let's sell, let's call it my party <laughs> with, with like the a very, very, um, to me, aberrant example of policies in a, a number of places. Because um, I, I think that's actually what we have to fight against is generalizing um, to a very, very large group based upon something that's happening in one pocket. Uh, I think that's one of the traps that we're falling into. Well, what about, I mean, the the two items I mentioned are definitely happening in California and in New York, too, where I live. I can speak to that. But these are two very, very liberal states. So it's possible they've been co-opted by that, quote unquote, left, capitalized left more so, certainly than flyover country. But what about, you know, we've seen a lot on race in this country, race relations. President Trump pulled the critical race theory um, instructions at the federal level where, it, you know, it, if you want to phrase it as pro-diversity and anti-bias, it sounds like one thing. But what was actually happening is they were gathering groups of colleagues together and the white people were being told that they were white supremacists as a result of their pigmentation and were told to just sit quietly while somebody told them about that and weren't allowed to respond. And th- some people were in tears. I mean, it, that, to, to me, this sounds like something designed to create racism where it might not otherwise exist, two colleagues getting along just fine. And next thing you know, one's being told he's horrible because of an immutable characteristic. And that's another thing Trump fought against. And I think folks who don't like cancel culture are like, "Mm, that's going to get re-implemented. Joe Biden gets in there. Not going to have somebody standing up for people who are being shamed for their immutable characteristics. I've been an entrepreneur for a number of years. Uh, One of my companies was bought by a big company that had a bunch of trainings, (laughs) shall shall we say. Um, So I certainly haven't been through a government version, but I've been through a large corporate version. And I think a lot of it boils down to the substance and nature of uh, any kind of training you get. And I, I think a lot of us, Megan, I mean, you've been part of corporate America. I think we've all sat through trainings where you're like, Wow, this might have made sense for <laughs> for someone in the HR suite, uh, but uh, you know I'm not sure if if, if this is uh, um, what we need. Um, some trainings can be done in a way that actually adds value, like some very much less so. Um, so I, I legitimately, you'd have to actually dig into what the substance was. If you say like, hey, is there some um, really unproductive training being run somewhere in the federal government? I say almost certainly yes, <laughs> having been through a, a version of it, uh, you know, in corporate America. Um, uh, but that should be the mission. It's like, okay, uh, like, do we think that this training uh, has some kind of positive goal? And then how do you actually have it meet that goal? And you and I have been part of organizations where the execution has left a lot to be desired. Um, so that that should be the focus is like, how do you actually deliver on what the intention is? Yeah. And is it is it doing more harm than good? Why aren't you the nominee? 
Um, there are a whole number of reasons, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I listened to you throughout the primaries. You're so reasonable. You just seem like somebody, you do seem like a uniter and you're young and you're entrepreneurial and you think outside the box. Sorry to use that cliche, but I mean, what do you think? Why why do you think Joe Biden wound up in there and not Andrew Yang? Well, we certainly were grateful to have gotten as, as far as we did and disappointed that uh, we didn't win. Uh, for me, I think I was a little bit um, new. You know, I think a, a lot of primary voters liked me and liked what they heard. I actually, I'll tell you this, Megan, I'm not sure how many times people have even told this. Um, so when I was campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, which I did a great deal, a number of people would come up to me after an event and put their hand on my arm and say, uh, I want you to be part of the cabinet or like, uh, I want you to run again. And when you were the candidate, in my case, you're like, oh, thank you. You're grateful. But on the other hand, like, that's not what I'm running for. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'm yeah, running to be the nominee right. right now. So this isn't <laughs> quite a compliment. Um, but but that was one of the messages I got while, while I was running was that people were excited about me, but there was a real massive priority and you can't blame them. There was a real massive priority on beating Trump. Um, it was like the number one criteria for primary voters in the Democratic side. Uh, and they were casting them out. Who's going to be Trump? Who's going to be Trump? And they decided Joe Biden. Um, I think that many of them were nervous uh, about putting Andrew Yang up against Trump because I seemed so new on the scene. Mm, but new no more, just in case it does, it goes south for Biden this time around. I want to ask you about a couple of other policy issues with Biden, okay? Uh, he's going to raise taxes on the wealthy. Top earners are going to see a 22% reduction in their after-tax earnings. He's going to raise taxes, they say, by at, at least a couple trillion bucks on businesses and high-income earners. The top corporate income tax is going to go from 21 to 28. Top federal income tax for individuals is going to go from 37 to 39.6. I know most people are like, well, screw them. They're rich. I don't care. I mean, I trust me, when I didn't have money, that's how I felt. I'm like, make them pay. I don't want to pay anything more. I don't I have to watch every dollar. But now that I know a bunch of business owners, I realize that the more they pay, the less people they tend to employ. And it has a trickle down effect in a way that is not always helpful when you hike up their taxes and the and the taxes of the the wealthy earners. To to folks who are concerned about that, what say you? When I was running again, I was always harping on the fact that companies like Amazon and Netflix paid nothing in taxes. Uh, I thought that was something that everyone would see as inappropriate. I mean, Amazon now is, I think somewhere like a one to $2 trillion company. And the fact that they paid zero on federal taxes uh, is just flat out wrong. Netflix, similar. Starbucks, before the hard times, was the same boat. Like a lot of these companies that have vast international operations. I just saw a study that said that the tech companies, mainly American, have $420 billion parked overseas because they don't want to have to pay taxes on it. I think such obvious problems with our current tax regime. And one of the traps we all get into, and this certainly includes the Democrats, is we look around and say, okay, you know what my fix is? My fix is ratcheting up tax rates on the folks who are paying taxes, rather than looking around and saying, how does it make sense that our biggest companies pay zero in taxes? Uh, which is one reason why I proposed uh, value-added tax, which is used in literally every other developed country except for ours. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that we've been uh, the only holdout 
Uh, and I suspect it's because the companies have a lot of influence over uh, our government and they realize that, you know, if they can uh, keep playing the international tax shell game, then, then they win. Um, I've been a small business owner. We paid about 50% of taxes. And I remember going to my accountant um, saying, what the heck is going on? <laughs> you know? like, yeah. I was based in New York City too. That, that's why. Yeah, that's me right you know, now. I'm in that same boat. Yeah, yeah. If you live in New York City and you have a business, like who's an LLC based in New York City, it was like literally like 49.4% or something like that. Like that. Yep. Uh, and that that's going to strike people as like garishly high uh, in most of the country. It was like a New York City thing. Um, we still pay those taxes and still headquartered in New York City because we love New York and, you know, and had some some real advantages. Um, I, I would differentiate between folks who, if they got to keep more of their money, they would genuinely invest it and hire more people, which includes many, many small business owners like I was. If you're an LLC and you're a private company, you very often qualify for very high tax rates very quickly. Um, but those enterprises are, are very different than the biggest multinationals and the big corporations. And the big corporations are the ones who got to play those tax games. When I was running my private business, I was I went to my account and I was like, am I a schmuck? <laughs> you know, like, totally. I, I think everyone asks themselves that when, when April 15th rolls around. And certainly when they saw the New York Times reporting on Trump's taxes, I am a schmuck. There's a 100% chance I am. Why did I pay anything? <laughs> Why don't I become a real estate baron? I think all of us are thinking about how we could buy real estate and write off all of our income. But, you know, most of us are W-2 employees. I certainly was during all my time, you know, on the air with Fox and NBC and ABC. And I paid 50% of taxes, 50% of my every paycheck I ever got went to taxes. And I have to say, it's irritating. <laughs> it's irritating to see like how people can game the system. But I also say as an individual to raise my taxes another whatever percent, it, that pisses me off too. It's like, how much is too much, right? 50% of my money, like I don't want Mayor de Blasio having my cash or Andrew Cuomo or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I don't trust them. I trust myself to manage my own money. But, you know, it's gotten out of control. So when I see like taxes are going up again, it worries me. It also worries me because Trump lowered them and the economy started booming. There are a couple of principles uh, I would push on here that I think most people can agree with. It's like, like if you and I are paying 50 percent, we look up and we see the real estate baron, the tech the nationals paying <laughs> literally zero close to it, then then it, it makes you rightfully uh, indignant. You're you're like, look, if I'm going to be a schmuck, you should be a schmuck too, <laughs> considering yes, that you're making a whole totally. lot more than um, that than I am. So that's that's number one, and, and number two is, I think we have a rightful concern around the efficiency of resources that are heading into government. It's one reason why I championed uh, universal basic income, because uh, people could then see it's like, well, look, this money is literally going into the, my own hands and the hands of the people around me going right back into the economy, supporting grocery stores and garages and local uh, leagues and the rest of it. Uh, because right now there's a, a legitimate concern that when we pay more in taxes, the money disappears into uh, the bowels of government, and we're not sure what is going on. Um, so one of the the things I, I championed when I was running, uh, number one, I would rebrand tax day into revenue day, um, because 
Like if you were a business that generated hundreds of billions of dollars on a single day, you would be celebrating. You'd be making your customers. You'd be doing all these things to say, you'd be doing things to make it easy. You would auto fill out the taxes. For the vast majority of Americans, it's actually very predictable how much we're going to owe based upon um, past filings and, and publicly available earnings and the, the rest of it. Uh, and then I would let you choose where to send the last 1% of your taxes. You choose uh, military, forestry, like whatever you want. And then you'd have a thank you message from that department being like, well, thank you for funding us. And here's the work we do. And we really appreciate it. And pictures of some government employee, not pictures, videos, you know. Um, so th there's like a real need to try and recast what's going on um, with our tax system, because right now we all just find it to be onerous and we feel like someone else is pulling a fast one and we're not. And it, and it's miserable. Well, I I'll tell you what I'm I'm done employing people in small. I'm going to buy some sort of a hotel. I'm going to do whatever. <laughs> that is Keep the way forward, the Andrew. Folks, can. I'm sure you have a great <laughs> team around you, the same way I do. Where you know yeah, they, they take care of us. <laughs> I'm only joking, but it, it. I think the whole tax thing is so irritating for every American. It's like I don't know what the solution is, but I do generally believe in lower taxes. Um, and I don't know that we're going to get them. We'll see. Okay. Listen, I have to ask you, cause I hear you talking about your policies and what Andrew Yang would have done. And I do think like, okay, yes, I, I like, I like a lot of this. Um, you're not on the ballot. So if Biden wins, I know that you've been approached about a possible cabinet position, or at least there's been some discussions. So which might that be? And is there any chance, cause I've heard your name also thrown around as a possible candidate for the mayor of New York City. So can you answer those two questions? Well, they are related, Megan. And uh, <laughs> I've, I've been focused on trying to help Joe and Kamala win. I think we will win. Um, and then if there's an opportunity for me to address some of the problems I ran on as part of the Biden administration, I would love that opportunity. Uh, and what that might look like specifically, I think that our government has been years and years behind the curve on technology issues, and it's gone from inconvenient to disastrous over time, where you have Facebook now selling and reselling data for tens of billions of dollars a year, and we're not seeing a dime and no one really knows what's going on. Uh, it's bad for our democracy. It's bad for our mental health. Uh, if you have teenage girls in particular, like you're seeing spikes in anxiety and depression uh, and anti-sociability, it's uh, like we, we've essentially run a real-time experiment on our kids uh, and because our government has been out to lunch. Um, so I, I've proposed some kind of technology secretary-facing role um, to try to bring to heal or bring under control uh, some of these tech companies that have run amok. And the problem is that the current legal frameworks we use aren't working. Where you have antitrust, uh, antitrust doesn't solve anything I just described, really. <laughs> you know, where uh, where Facebook, uh, even if they were to divest themselves of uh, Instagram and the rest of it, like you'd still have the, some of the same problems just split up among different operators. Um, so we have to take a different approach towards some of these tech companies. And I'd like to help. Um, so th those are the things I, I've uh, uh, I've expressed an interest in working on. So I'll tell you what, if you're interested in tech, the iron's never been hotter, right? Because the Republicans are so ticked off at Facebook and Twitter for what they did on that Hunter Biden story. And I i mean, I'm sure you're not loving that story because you're supporting Biden. But what did you think of that? Because I tell you, as somebody who I don't have a dog in this hunt, but I found that incredible that they just shut shut down the story, wouldn't allow the New York Post back on Twitter, wouldn't let them circulate it, shut down everybody from forwarding on the link. 
like Big Brother. Like they really were editor in chief of the country. And it was shocking to me. I think it really it was I think it's going to have a lot of fallout over the years to come. I saw something very similar, uh, like in real time, you know, like this week on um, Google search results for something called Prop 24, which is a voter ballot initiative in California that would create new data and privacy rights for Californians. It's a very big deal. Tech companies don't like it. And if you were to run a Google search on it in California, it, would, it showed you negative results. <laughs> you know? so, so then you scratch That's your chin like, wow, like that, that could be a very, very big deal. Uh, what, what you're seeing um, is that Twitter, Facebook, Google have essentially become our public information commons. Uh, and they're making all sorts of content moderation decisions. Most of them you, you never hear about, Megan. And a lot of them have to do with uh, trying to stamp out incitements to violence, threats, like th- things that none right. of us really like you know want to want our kids just exposed to when they when they go on these platforms they're doing sure. that all the time um and then now the decisions are bleeding into a room where someone could get very very angry and upset because it seems uh one-sided or political uh, and so my my proposition is that it doesn't make sense to have these private companies making these kinds of decisions on everyone's behalf uh, that at some point it behooves us to have a more systematic regulatory approach uh, to say, look, you guys are now the de facto public commons. Uh, we got here through, you know, this process where, uh, you know, a lot of us didn't see it coming or, you know, like Congress was asleep at the switch, but we're here now. Um, so here's what we need to do. Uh, and the tech companies actually, I'm going to argue, need some help on this because if you're a private company having to make thousands of line drawing content moderation decisions, you're going to screw up clearly, you know, and, and so they, yeah, they should it's, look it's up. It's dangerous to put that kind of control in government's hands, too. Like, I don't necessarily love that Mark Zuckerberg's controlling what I can and cannot see, but I don't, with all due respect, want you to control it either. Well, I, I'm not saying like, uh, you know, any one entity. What, what I propose is that you get together uh, NGOs, nonprofits, media, tech companies and government, um, and you build a process that everyone has like a degree of transparency into that everyone can agree on, everyone can see how the decisions get made. Um, But I I think letting the tech companies decide unilaterally is not the right approach. Uh, And if you say, look, I don't want some government bureaucrat making every decision, like don't disagree, but someone has to make a decision. Um, and it should be a greater collective that's representative of different interests than simply someone in Facebook HQ uh, or, let's say, an individual sitting in an office building in D.C. OK, now, if if things don't go Joe Biden's way on Tuesday, what are you thinking about Gracie Mansion on the Upper East Side of, of New York City? Does it look good to you? Is that a place you could picture yourself? Do you is there any chance you actually do run for mayor here? Uh, well, I, what I would suggest, Megan, is that um, I want to solve the biggest problems that I can find and run for office um, an, another time would actually be, I think, a lot easier than the first time. <laughs> so, so you're likely to see Andrew Yang's name on a ballot um, somewhere at some point in the future. But but right now I am focused on helping Joe and Kamala win. I don't want to uh, think about, um, you know, what's going to happen if for some reason uh, I'm wrong on that score. Well, we are a hot mess in New York City, and there, you're you seem great, but anything would be a step up. Anything that that could be your whole platform, not De Blasio. 
<laughs> he's done as of next year, but we are all yeah, I know. That, sick that, of him. I guess virtually anyone's going to benefit from from being able to say I'm not, I'm not, I'm not De Blasio. <laughs> totally. Thank you for getting it. Okay. Can, so I got, I know I have to let you go, but I, I want to ask you your predictions for election day and in terms of electoral college numbers and also the Senate. Uh, wow, electoral college. I haven't done the scoreboard thing, Megan. Uh, I would say I think it's going to be a significant victory for Joe. I don't think it's going to be a nail biter down to the wire in terms of electoral votes. I think he wins a significant number of the swing states, um, including at least one or two states that Trump won. Um, so I feel good about it not being a nail biter. Uh, the Senate's going to be close, but I think the Democrats take a slight already. I think that uh, Susan Collins in Maine is very vulnerable. I think John Hickenlooper beats Cory Gardner. Um, and then there are a bunch of very competitive races um, that look like they're tilting Republican anew. Um, but I think the Democrats take a slight majority. Do you think if Joe Biden wins, he's going to pack the Supreme Court? I was expressed disinterest in that approach. I personally, Megan, you might disagree with me on this. I am for modernization of the Supreme Court. I think lifetime appointments make no sense. Uh, I think we should have 18-year terms and have regular people cycling on and off, get um, two um, appointments per four-year term, and just get a predictable consequence of winning or losing a presidential election that's not based upon someone expiring uh, or not expiring. Uh, but that's my position and not Joe's. Uh, Joe, Joe doesn't seem very interested in packing the, the court, um, though, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if he winds up in that seat. All right. Last question. I'll let you go. I know there are a lot of people out there scared of President Trump and the thoughts of him being reelected. I mean, I've heard them. I've heard the Democrats who are really afraid of him and his agenda. And there are Republicans who are afraid of Joe Biden, too. You know, they they're afraid of what's going to happen to our country um, and in our the way we treat one another, the way we judge one another, uh, the way we're going to be governed and who's who's really going to be calling the shots. So I'll ask you to speak to the latter group since you're a Democrat. What To those people who are afraid of him, to the country surrendering, if you will, to the, the nastiest bullies on the far left who tell everybody, this is how you have to speak and this is how you have to think and this is how you have to be if you want to have your job and your friends and your stay in school and the university of your choice. And that that's that Joe Biden as president is essentially a green light for that. Not him personally, but just Democrat rule in the House, in the Senate, in the White House. What do you say? I'd say that Joe Biden will be a president for everyone. Uh, he has zero interest in pitting Americans against each other. Uh, if anything, he wants to be a unifier. And that includes, I believe, trying to uh, bring under control any tendency to castigate and uh villainize uh, any group of people, whether they agree with him politically or not. Um, the challenge you're describing, Megan, I'm going to characterize as depolarization. And we can sense that our country is more divided than ever, uh, that the political stressors are nearly unprecedented. We need to bring our collective temperature down. And I'm going to suggest that Joe Biden is a really nice wet blanket <laughs> where <laughs> Uh, where it, it, if there's going to be anyone that gets uh, uh, us to cool cool off, uh, it's Joe. He, you know, he, he's he is what he seems to be. I've spent time with him off stage in person. I think you probably have too, given uh, you know your uh, your your 
career in journalism. And you get a sense that, you know, he actually is what he seems to be. Um, I think he's going to end up with a leadership team that reflects his abilities. Uh, and he's genuinely is a unifier. I know a lot of politicians talk about that, but um, there really is Joe's MO. Andrew Yang, thank you so much. It's great talking to you. You too, Megan. A big day tomorrow. Uh, whoever wins, let's make sure everyone votes and that uh, America stays together. Uh, I think we should all be able to agree on that. Absolutely. Hope you come back. Great to talk to you. Great talking to you too. All the best. So interesting, isn't he? It's like just a, a, a very reasonable perspective, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. I love talking to people who make sense, who aren't crazy left or crazy right. And uh, he's emerged as a star as in terms of being that way. So that guy's got a big history in, or a big future, I should say, in politics. And we need more rational people in that arena. So good for him. Um, in a minute, we're going to be having Robert Cahaley. He's the pollster for Trafalgar. You know, that's the one outlet that has been saying Trump is going to win this race and has been putting him uh, in the in the lead in all these critical swing states for a long, long while now. And I'll ask him whether he stands by that now. But first, I want to talk to you about home title lock. I got a crash course in home title theft. And listen, you, you need to pray this never happens to you. This is a bad crime that can ruin you financially. And it's one, unlike getting mugged on the street, you don't even know when it's happening to you. Here's how easy it is. The legal title to all of our homes they're, they're digitized and they're kept on government and business servers and up in the cloud where they can be hacked too easily. These cyber thieves who are getting very sophisticated, they'll find your home's title. And then one of these bad guys will forge your signature on a quick claim deed stating that you sold your home to him. It's his now. Done. Then he'll take out loans against your home until all of your equity is gone, leaving you in debt up to your eyeballs. You won't even know until the collection calls start pouring in and you're like, huh, who? No. And they're like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. You will not be protected by insurance, by your bank or by any of the common identity theft programs. And that is where Home Title Lock comes in. Home Title Lock will put a barrier around your home's title. The instant they detect tampering, they will help shut it down cold. So go to HomeTitleLock.com, register your address to see if you're already a victim. No. And then use code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Okay, now it's time to bring you a feature we call Sound Up here on The Megan Kelly Show. And this is where we play you a soundbite that made some news or that we found kind of interesting. Uh, and this week it is about a man named Don Lemon, who you heard me talk about a bit with Hugh Hewitt, who once again has decided to use his national platform Um to say awful things about Republicans, because that's who he is. Uh, here's the latest offering, and then uh, we'll talk about it on the opposite side. Listen. I have, many, I have many people who I love in my life. And yeah, I come from a red state. I've lived in several red states. There are a lot of friends who I had to really get rid of because they, they are so nonsensical when it comes to this issue. They have the whole every single talking point that they hear on state TV and that they hear from this president. They repeat it, and they are blinded by it. I, I had to get rid of them because they are too far gone. I try and I try and I try. They'll say something really stupid and then I'll show them the science and I'll give them the information and they still repeat those talking points. Sometimes you just have to let them go. I think that they have to hit rock bottom like an addict, right? And they have to want to get help. They have to want to know the truth. They have to want to live in reality. They have to want to be responsible, not only for other people's lives, but for their lives. So you know what? I have had, it's so sad 
And I don't know if after this I will ever be able to go back and be friends with those people because at a certain point you just say they're too far gone and I got to let them go. That is what we are saying about you, Don. You are too far gone to be calling yourself a fair and objective newscaster, which you clearly are not. <laughs> this guy, I, he's clearly talking about COVID. And at least let, that's how it sounds. Not that that makes it any better, because if you have a different view on COVID and how to handle all these restrictions than Don does, you're a bad person. You're too far gone to be his friend. Whereupon absolutely none of Don Lemon's friends cried a single tear. <laughs> this guy, has there ever been anyone more judgmental in news or in friendship, as it turns out? This is the same guy who hosted that segment, you remember, with Rick Wilson and um, another commentator where they were mocking Trump supporters as uneducated and illiterate. And uh, they, they were calling them illiterate rubes, illiterate rubes. And Don Lemon yucked it up. He thought that was so funny how dumb anyone who could support President Trump was. And that one, he later tried to come out and say, oh, I didn't I didn't understand what the joke was. I, I was confused. Was he confused when he came out and said Donald Trump supporters must have cognitive dissonance to support such a bad person? That's a quote that his supporters, quote, like shiny objects. They like the racism. They like the misogyny. This is the man CNN would like to put up to you as somebody who's just providing you the straight news. You, if you support Donald Trump, let's say you're super pro-life. That's your single voting issue. No, sir. You're actually a racist and a misogynist, courtesy of Don. He'll walk you through it, but not over a cup of coffee because he can't stand you. <laughs> if you're somebody who's sick and tired of the school restrictions and you might doubt the information you're getting from Dr. Fauci and you might want to give Dr. Scott Atlas a listen, uh, no, you're bad. You have to be cut out of Don's life. I don't know. That's not how I run my life, but I have to say, if I were cut out of his, I think I'd be celebrating in the streets. And that is what we call Sound Up. Robert Cahaley is with me now. He is the guy behind the polling firm Trafalgar, which is loathed by people like Nate Silver over at 538 and Philip Bump of The Washington Post, but got it right, unlike virtually everyone else back in 2016. This is a guy who saw Trump's victory coming when virtually no one else did. Robert, thank you so much for being here. It is an honor to be here. All right. So 538, Nate Silver, right now they're saying Joe Biden has a 90 percent chance of winning and that there is a 76% chance that the Democrats win the Senate. Do you disagree? Very much. I think that, uh, well, I've seen Nate hedge a little bit lately, and he starts saying things like, well, if Biden doesn't get a 5% or greater spread in the uh, popular vote, then those numbers don't hold up. So they're backing off a little bit, I feel like. Um, the, the race is exactly where I kind of assumed it would be uh, their fundamental problem with the polling today is that people are very, very hesitant to say they're for Trump. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. Take Michael Moore's word for it. He says not to trust these polls and that Biden didn't do it anywhere near as good as these things say, because he believes that Trump supporters are also hesitant to say they're for Trump. And, um, you know, we saw this four years ago. It is much greater that today than it was four years ago. Uh, people just don't want to deal with the stigma. They, they don't know whether it's really a poll. I mean, you know, we get the first two questions we get if we talk to somebody is one, how long is this going to take? Or, you know, our second question, is, is this really a poll? Uh, are you recording this? 
I mean, mm-hmm. it literally is people are so nervous and it's nuts uh, it, and it's across the board uh, with anybody who's for Trump. So every, I think there's no question that the, this entire election comes down to how big is the shy Trump vote? That's really what the election is about. How big is the shy Trump vote? Because if there is none and all these other polls are right, Biden's going to win in a landslide. And if there is some, but it's just a little, then Biden's still going to win, but it might not be in a landslide. But if there's a big shy Trump vote, Trump could win and he could win big on Tuesday night. So you're the one guy who's really trying in earnest to figure out how big is the shy Trump vote and how do we account for them? Let me just say the other pollsters say he's not the only one. (laughs) We understood that we didn't poll correctly last time around. And we now know that there was an intensity of voters that, you know, we just overlooked and we didn't adequately wait for them. And now we've corrected all of that. Why is that not true? Well, first of all, they don't admit the shy Trump voter exists. They think they underweighted um, uh, non-college whites. And that after after all their, you know, their, their gnashing of teeth and all their little hullabaloo meetings, that's what they've come up with is they didn't wait right. They do not acknowledge that they have a fundamental flaw with the live call polling system and that that is where the shy voter is most likely to stay shy. And the proof of it is we had a dress rehearsal. It was called Florida 2018, where there was also a shy vote. And it was uh, for DeSantis because people were out there, you know, there was that overinflated vote for Gillum. And they, every single one of these firms all got it wrong again. And again, we were the only one that saw that DeSantis was going to win that race. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I said, you tell me you fixed it, fine. But if it was a plumber and they leave the house and all of a sudden the next thing I turn it on, the worst phrase of where they didn't fix anything. There are two groups of voters that the pollsters missed last time around. They missed the shy Trump voters and they missed rural voters, like first time voters who normally wouldn't have shown up. Is that right? It is. And that's one of the things we did different is right after the South Carolina and Georgia primary, because those are the, you know, those are the two states that I, I, I live in and grew up in. I saw all the, kept hearing these stories about people showing up to vote who didn't know how to use the, you know, the, the electric machines. And I'm like, these electronics have been in place for 20 years. What are you talking about? So I would really, that summer we studied, all right, who are these people that have come out of the woodwork? They're not new voters. And we built a fingerprint. We came up with that 57 characteristics that seemed to define all those voters. And we went through for 2016 in the fall, and we, we anybody we saw on the voter list that it, uh, that uh, matched like 12 of them, we considered a potential what we called Trump surge voter, and we accounted for them in our likely voter universe. And sure enough, they did show up because now when we look back between uh, 2016 and 1992, there's a the vast majority of people who voted one time in that 14 uh, year period better than 2016. Okay, because the pollsters are saying that they've fixed that piece, whether they that whether they believe in the shy Trump voter, we'll get to in a second. But they are saying that they have fixed their underestimation of the the intensity of rural voters for Trump that normally wouldn't be in the voting population. Do you do you agree that they have fixed that? Well, remember, there are two things that you said. One was the rural voters and their intensity and others were the first time voters. Uh-huh. I think they might have 
fix that, but uh, fix the uh, rural voter thing, may, maybe. But it's the first time, if it's a first time voter and you haven't figured out a way to figure out who that's likely to be, then you haven't really fixed it. Now, we figured it out last time because we knew who they were going to be and, and that they were very much exactly who we thought they would be. And they represented it, roughly the area we thought they would represent. Now, this time is, this time, are they going through the voter list and looking and saying, all right, who are the people who have been stagnant for a lot of years that we think are going to participate this year? And I don't believe they've done that because I've been literally working those kind of surveys for this entire time on these low propensity voters and can give you, num you know, numbers across the country and what those are. And I do not, I do not buy that for one second. Okay. So now, so that's one group. And then there's the shy Trump vote. And I, there is no question in my mind that there is a shy Trump voter and it's significant. And I actually think these huge gaps in the gender um, distribution, like these women who are not saying publicly that they're not going to, uh, that they will vote for him, make up a, a healthy proportion of them. And these college you educated. You are absolutely right. Right. Because I know women here at, in New York City last week, I was sitting around at a dinner with a bunch of women all of whom, you know, you look at their Facebook pages, Biden, 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 Biden. And then and then there's my one friend who's just not saying much. You know, she's not really saying much. And then later, of course, we talk and she feels very differently. And, and it happens to me all the time where because like, people will confide in me because they know I was at Fox News for 13 years. They know I had a dust up with Trump, but they know I'm very fair. And um, they'll tell me privately I'm voting for him. And I will never admit it. I have another friend who's uh, a fairly well-known actress. And she's like, oh, hell no, I'm not telling anybody I'm voting for him. I'll get kicked out of Hollywood. But she's voting for Trump. So it's it's gotten to the point now, you've, I've heard you point this out before, where it's more dangerous, if you will, sadly, than ever to say you're voting for him. It's gotten only worse since 2016. So you think this population has only grown? I think it has absolutely grown. And it's really fascinating. Um, up until 10 days ago, if I had to give you the top three demographics for shy Trump voters, it was first uh, suburban women of higher income, suburban white women of higher income. Second was black men under 50. And the third was suburban men with higher income. Now, something happened in the last 10 days and all of a sudden the shy Trump vote among the African-American community dissolved. And they, you know, we, we've seen that number go from 15, 17, some of these states to over 20 in North Carolina, over 20 in Michigan, over 20 in Florida, over 20 in uh, Minnesota. I mean, just like wait, over boom, 20 boom, what? Over 20 months. Over 20 percent of the black voters in those states are all now saying they're for Trump. Openly saying. Openly saying it. No more hidden vote. No more shy. Just like I mean, when I put it out on Twitter, I'm like, you know, the, the shy Trump vote just just got a little less shy. They're coming out of their shell. Well, you've had, you know, you've had um, uh, Ice Cube out there saying he's, you know, at least he's talking to the Trump campaign and wants to work with them on improving uh, people's lives in the black community. And then you had 50 Cent come out and then he got shamed by Chelsea Handler, among others, and kind of started a waffle. But you have had some well-known, not to mention Kanye, well-known African-American men come out and say, yeah, I'm open-minded at least and may even be supporting him. And sometimes that's what it takes. People can't underestimate the debate because that's what we're hearing is that, you know, we, we delve in and ask a little more 
from people who had not been for Trump before. And they say, you know, I did, I'd never heard all this stuff about the funding of the historically black colleges. I heard a little something about the criminal justice form, had never heard of the platinum plan or the enterprise zoned. And frankly, if you weren't listening to conservative talk or you won't, weren't watching conservative TV, you might not have known that. Well, the first time many of them heard that was the debate. And, and they tell me, I Googled it and realized it was true and thought, why didn't this happen before? So what about, okay, so the, the question is, how do you figure out what the number is? And I know you've done all sorts of waiting to try to predict this is the number of the shy Trump vote, which will be reflected in the Trafalgar poll numbers, but nobody else's. That's why you've got him leading in most of these states, whereas Biden is leading in, in most of the other polls. So the, the, some of the response to this has been, look, 2020 is not 2016. That Biden, unlike Hillary, has had a large, sustained lead over Trump all along. He has led him in the polls by an average of 7.1%. Hillary led Trump by an average of 3.7%. And then in 2016, we saw a tightening in the polls at the last minute. And we did. We did see a tightening in the polls at the last minute. That even put Trump up in many states that he's now projected to be down in. Um, that should have shown people it was closer than we knew. And they're saying none of that is happening in 2020. What's what's your response to that? My response to that is, they're right, 2020 isn't 2016. Was the word cancel culture part of the national vocabulary in 2016? No, it was not. Was deplorable. One of the worst things people said about Trump supporters, is that the worst thing they say today? The world has changed. Uh, and the toleration for people who don't have the mainstream media accepted version of opinion, they're very much criticized for that. Uh, I mean, the what we've seen, you know, people having their houses trashed, people, you know, being beat up for wearing a Trump hat. I mean, we have a very polarized country right now and people are extremely hesitant to get, you know, come a little too out front and, um, I mean, the, the, the harassment, I mean, I don't even think we knew what the word doxing was four years ago. So a lot of things have happened that are different. And um, I think that has all led to this. The other thing is we had a, a cultural thing happen this, this spring and this summer. Uh, and, and this is what I hear all the time is that it, it, it's what happened in the wake of all the, the riots and, and the violence, and then we had, you know, defund the police, full-fledged cancel culture, tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, Columbus. And then we were literally having a debate in the United States of America a week before the 4th of July as to whether Mount Rushmore is a white supremacist symbol. And right. people just said, what? Average Americans were like, what is happening to this country? And it, it was like the values that everybody accepted, you know, the old Superman slogan, truth, justice, the American way is now offensive. Whether America is the exception or whether America is a force for good in the world is now being debated. Well, there are a lot of people in this country that made really, really angry. Right. And they know there's a price to pay for sharing that anger on social media and that, but they share it with us. They share it when they get comfortable and they assure that for the first time in a long time, many of them are going to vote. That's how I feel. They share it with me too. 
I, if I had a nickel for the number of people who have come up to me to tell me that they're going to vote for Trump, they don't like some of his sharp elbows, they don't like what he says on Twitter and all that, but they're voting for him because they're sick of all this BS. They're sick of being told how they have to think. And this is the one opportunity they have to really fight back. No, Their employer doesn't know what they do in the voting booth. Their their neighbors, their friends don't know. I really feel like you get it because it's so the intensity I hear is like an itch. They have to scratch. And the only way they scratch it is Election Day. And it, it, it could be storming. It could be thunder. There could be hail coming through the building. But they're going to vote because they, they have to have their say. And they're just so mad. They've been so bad for so long. And they tell me all the time I'm inundated with this. And I mean, even with, you know, some of, I mean, I hear it from some of the, you know, they talk about the suburban women. I hear it from moms who hate everything about Trump, but they hate those kids being home. They think they're getting behind in school. I talked to business women who's, who are telling me I used to, I was an equal with the men in my office, but now I'm staying home with the kids all day and they're getting ahead of me. And it's not fair and I don't like it. And there's no reason for my kids to be home. I mean, that they're pushing back on all this stuff and voting for a guy they don't like because they think it's what's best for their family. Well, and it's like you see, you know, you're told by everybody that you're a racist or you're a bigot, you're a transphobe if you vote for Trump. And I think some of the moms I've talked to are saying, you, you know, I'm more worried about my kid being called a racist or a bigot or a transphobe for one false step in his or her class. Like this this whole thing is going to get passed down unless it's stopped, unless we have somebody standing up to these bullies. And Trump, for all of his faults, is such a person, you know, but we'll see whether people think that's the issue they want to vote on. You know, there are a lot of people on their heels about covid who feel like somehow Biden can solve it in a way Trump couldn't. And a lot of Democrats and sort of center folks who are sick of the Trump chaos. Right. The Trump show has gotten old for them. Absolutely. But, you know, it's it's funny. I I feel like, you know, saying to the carvels of the world, so you're telling me it was the economy stupid in, in 92, but it's the personality stupid? I don't think I buy that. I don't think people vote against their own self-interest quite as much as you think. And, but if you are for Trump, you might not tell anybody. I mean, we have, we we used the neighbor question four years ago we talked about it in the media after the election was over and everybody's copying it. We got stuff so much better than that this year, but I ain't telling everybody. No, good for you. They're going to steal it. By the way, the neighbor question is, um, you know, Donna, how do you feel? And Donna's like, oh, I'm voting for Biden. Then you say, Donna, how, what do your neighbors say? How do you think your neighbor's going to vote? And Donna's like, oh, they're definitely voting for Trump. And, and so Robert has used this to sort of get to Donna's voting for Trump. Donna, Donna will talk about what the neighbor says, but Donna's not going to say what you know, she actually thinks because she says she doesn't want to be shamed, right? Does that basically sum it up? Absolutely. It's a projection device. It let, and, you know, and I, whereas a lot of these guys take credit for it and do it themselves and don't acknowledge us, I've always, everywhere I go, acknowledge a guy named Rod Cheeley, who was a contemporary Lee Atwater, who was a pollster in South Carolina, told me, you got to find a nice way to ask people about things that aren't pleasant. And he told me about this years and years ago. So, I don't take credit for other people's ideas. I got it from Rod. I thought it was interesting how you were you were pointing out on another show that because um, the question was the Trump voters, they don't seem shy, you know, when you see them out there on the streets. And your point was those are just the ones who aren't. There are lots of Trump voters who are loving it. They wear the MAGA hat. They don't care what you think. But there is another contingent that doesn't like confrontation. And those are the ones who aren't being counted. 
and it's about your personality. There are people who live for confrontational situations, and there are people who will avoid them as part of polite society in any situation. And so especially, you know, I hear them say, well, you know, I don't believe they're Trump supporters. All the Trump supporters I know, you know, ride around in pickup trucks with big flags and stuff, and they're just so annoying. And I'm like, and you know what? They're probably Trump supporters who agree with you and don't want you to think of them the way you think of those guys. And that's why you don't know that for Trump. Mm. So what now that we're you know, less than 24 hours out, are, have you waffled at all? Are you is it do you think the vote for Trump is getting any weaker, stronger? What? I, I've never bought into the idea that the hidden vote didn't exist. It is counterintuitive to all logic to think that it doesn't. Uh, we saw it demonstrated before. And, you know, I, and I, I grew up doing politics in South Carolina. So I saw it when I was a kid doing politics, watching TV coverage from North Carolina. I saw Jesse Helms's vote. They said if Jesse was only down by five, he was going to win by two. So I know this is real. I've experienced this in my life. I've seen it in race after race after race. So I know that it's real. And so, no, I'm not backing off. I, I, I think that that's the problem is that people don't, there are other pollsters who tell me they agree with me, but they just don't want to take the risk. They don't want to get that far out front. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're ones who- Oh, there's a shy know, Trump pollster. Me. Yep. Oh, there's there's lots of them. You know, the ones that, that know it's real and that every now and then will throw a poll out there that, that, that the mainstream likes so they can put some ones that the mainstream doesn't like. Well, there's a few like that. And, they, and they're doing what they can and understand. They're trying to protect they're trying to protect their careers and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I know there's safety in numbers, but it is so much better if you just say what you believe. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. You just admit it. When we've made mistakes. I've admitted them. I've admitted why. The only thing I can promise you is if I am wrong, I will spend a lot of time figuring out why. Well, I like your no fear approach. I That's our approach here on, on this show as well. It's like, this is what I think. And, you know, right or wrong, I'm going to stand by it. Do you, as I look at your sort of projection, seems like the the only state that Trump won the last time around that you you might be a little wobbly on is Wisconsin. Is that right? Or is there more in the list of mm, don't bet on it for Trump winning? The other state that I, I talk about is Pennsylvania. I'm a real big believer in significant voter fraud in Pennsylvania. And I, although I have him up by one, I believe he has to win it by four or more to receive the votes there. I think that the Supreme Court ruling, the state Supreme Court, uh, allowing absentee ballots without postmarks is absolute. I mean, they have they have literally opened the floodgates for fraud. Uh, and Philadelphia, in particular, in the state of Pennsylvania, is famous for fraud, like famous Chicago, famous for fraud. And... Um, I think that is that is institutional fraud the moment you open that door. So I, I believe Trump is probably going to get the most votes in Pennsylvania. I am not sure he will be given the election win in Pennsylvania unless he gets wins by 4% or more. So final prediction on Electoral College. What do you think? Trump's at least mid to upper 270s. Mm, mid to upper. And And my last question, are you nervous as the only guy who's out on that limb? Are you nervous? You know, the way, the way I look at it is this. I was the only guy on the limb four years ago when I said it. Um, and if you don't take a stand, I've had lots of opportunities in life when I had to, I had to 
the easy thing was to kind of sulk away and quote unquote hide in the basement. But that that's just not me. I'm I'm you know I'm the I'm the same way if I'm playing roulette. I mean I'm just I'm in, and that's the way I'm playing. And and I I think I think I'm right, and I'm willing to take a gamble because the return is just too high. And if I'm wrong, I'll admit it. And and if you called it right, you're going to be a hero, and everybody's going to want to come work for you. Every polling outlet in the country is going to be on a knee saying they're sorry. No, they're not. They're actually going to find something wrong with you. But oh, they're going to they're, they're going to make up all kind of reasons they were wrong, just like <laughs> they did last time. They're going to have a bunch of little meetings. They're going to figure out they waited something wrong, and the media is going to forget and forgive because their job really wasn't to reflect the election. Their job was to affect the election. Mm, well said. So good to talk to you, Robert. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Wow. Fascinating guy, isn't he? That's like, think about that. I mean, he got it right. He got it right in 2018. He got it right in 2016. He's been the scourge of the mainstream media because he's not saying what they're saying and they want to delegitimize him. And thankfully, this is one of those games where the outcome is knowable. We're going to find out uh, on Tuesday one way or the other. Um, my thanks to, to Robert, to Andrew Yang, and to Hugh Hewitt for being with me. And uh, quickly want to tell you that today's episode was brought to you in part by Stamps.com. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead and use code MK for a special offer. So we are going to have a show tomorrow, Tuesday, election day as well. And we're going to have one after that. We're going to have a few this week for you. We're going to have more this week than we normally do because it's such a big week. We want to be there for you guys. And the one thing we would like to ask in return, if you don't mind, is to go and subscribe to the show. That is how we sort of stay connected to you. You got to subscribe as opposed to just randomly download. And that way the services will just make sure our feed pops up on your phone in the morning and you won't miss an episode. You will get the show before anyone else. So go on over, subscribe to The Megan Kelly Show, give us a five-star rating, and send me a review if you feel so inclined. I'm looking forward to spending this week with you guys. And uh, look, we'll learn it all together and we'll be here for you with full analysis, response, and calm, rational thought. We're good. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.